John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 718.2C1102, certificate number 11658, Lieutenant Nunn. Lieutenant Nunn. Or Lieutenant Nunn in the United Kingdom. Although, um... Lieutenant Nunn's adventures have not made it to the BBC. Oh, the, the, one of the few adventures that haven't. There's, they have all kinds of lieutenants solving village crime, but no Lieutenant Nunn. Lieutenant, Content is king. Lieutenant Nunn seems like it might be a, uh, is it an anime? I've seen all 18 seasons of Lieutenant Nunn. Lieutenant Nunn is definitely like a, like a 70s porno. Like <laughs> 100% for sure. <laughs> Lieutenant Nunn, I need your badge and your gun and your underwear. <laughs> lieutenant Nunn is actually both a lieutenant and a nun. Um, although the lieutenant's a little, an ex-nun at least. And the lieutenant part is a little iffy. So which is it? She's neither a lieutenant nor a nun, uh, according to your latest Oh, that's true. Revision. Lieutenant Nunn is neither a lieutenant nor a nun. Discuss. Um, she was a nun earlier in her life, but not during most of her adventures. The book she wrote about herself, although its authorship is disputed, it seems to be an autobiography, is called La Monja Alferez. Okay. Alferez. Alferez. Um, which means, I guess more literally, it would be like the ensign nun. Oh. But it's almost always translated in English. She gets a big promotion. She gets but translated in English. But she's as a naval officer. Nun. Yeah, it's a, it's a rank. It's a military mm-hmm. rank. Uh, and her birth name was Catalina de Arauso. And right here, I should say, so much is uncertain about Lieutenant Nunn's life, uh, including her dates. Like, her own account has her born in 1585, while baptismal records have it as 1592. But as we'll see as we look into her life, it's not even clear which pronouns we should use referring to Catalina. Hmm. And I mean no offense um, when I use female pronouns, but that's usually what most academics do, because... You know, anything we conclude about her sexuality would be speculative. And after the fact, today, uh, she was... None is kind of a giveaway. Uh, certainly uh, assigned a woman at birth um, in the seventh, early, sorry, late 16th century. She's a 17th century figure, but she was born around 1590. Um, but in her own writing about herself, she actually will use... She'll have other people refer to her with male pronouns during the part of her life in which she is passing as a man, which is a considerable amount of it. Uh-huh. Um, now, we've done episodes of The Omnibus before on um, on women passing as men in military contexts. Oh, yeah. Who was the figure? Uh, uh, I can't remember now. Yeah, Deborah Sampson, uh, the American Revolutionary War oh, hero. I remember from, that uh, From an earlier Omnibus. That was only a year ago, and I have it's all a blur at this point. Well, it was COVID year, so right. that year is either no time at all or ten thousand years. That's right. But the the lieutenant nun um, had had two major 
careers as a nun and as a lieutenant. A briefer career as a nun, a longer, uh, and the military career is kind of brief too. But in addition to both, she had a series of bizarre picaresque adventures on several continents, which were immortalized in her own book, which is usually translated as Lieutenant Nun Memoirs of a Basque Transvestite. <sighs> Which does not sound like a book from the from the Spanish Golden Age. Like Memoirs of a Basque Transvestite sounds like a sounds like a oh I know what it sounds Almodovar like. <laughs> era uh, memoir. And so, um, so the titular lieutenant nun in this story, in her uh, in their own book, changes pronouns depending on that part of their life. Yeah, well, she'll have the people referring to her will say him when they, you know, re- oh, sure, re- reasonably so when they think... Because those people would picture them as a as a him. I'm not sure if she writes about herself in the third person and uses he in the, in, in the male parts and she in the female parts, although I guess that would be a possibility as well. And if this was written in Spanish, it would have been even... Additionally, complexified by the gendered right there, even language. nouns are gendered. Yeah. You know, there you can't even say whether someone is your your friend or your teacher without saying my male friend, my female friend. My I make sure never friend. to say whether someone is my friend or teacher without specifying their gender in our contemporary times. Exactly. Do you, do you yeah. say uh, my male teacher, my non-binary teacher? Yes. Do you feel like that helps people imagine I them? I do. Because you can't imagine them. You can't picture no, them. In I your can't head. picture them. I can only I can only say the words that signify them. I don't like to reduce people to a gender or or even lack thereof. I like to expand the gender. I just don't like how you do it with race all the time. I, I hey, this true. is my this is my white friend. This is Ken. my this is my Basque friend. I'm this like, is hey, my transvestite friend. This is my Basque transvestite <laughs> friend. Um, the uh, the book that she ended up writing these these uh, previously mentioned memoirs of a Basque transvestite. We're not even translated into English until 1908. What? Where were they moldering for the 200 years prior, 300 years prior? Well, they had never been translated from the Spanish. The first first, um, widespread Spanish publication was in 1829 by Joaquin Maria de Ferrer, who had copied them from another manuscript, which had been copied from an original 1784 that a historian named Munoz had found in the archive of the Indies, uh, like a new world book library. And all these were, uh, this was a version of, uh, what appears to be a quasi fictional 1626 autobiography, which did make quite a stir when it was released. Was Um, it, was it, is it possible that it was, uh, that this is some sort of Hitler's diaries thing where, there was no original manuscript? When you read the book, you cannot help but think that, given the series of bizarre and repetitive and violent and unlikely and melodramatic adventures that Lieutenant Nunn has, on a, again, on three continents, series of continents, uh, you can't help but wonder, or you can't help but treat it as a novel. And yet, it's told in a very kind of flat, dull affect like, and then I fought another duel. You know, the, the, the kind of way a, a fiction writer would would never refuse to live in prose, presumably, and where factual, checkable, uh, you know, milestones appear in the work, they do appear to match reality. The dates Ooh. line up. There are, you know, she is an attested historical figure. You know, her her childhood can be shown. The military unit she serves in can be shown. The real people she meets are attested elsewhere, and they appear to be showing up at the right places at the right times. Uh, Interesting. So from all external evidence, it passes muster as a memoir. It's just the stuff it contains is so crazy that it's hard to believe. This would have been just at the very dawn of the idea of a novel, though. So to the degree that uh, that her book made a splash, it was not so much because of the memoir as from the other works it inspired in the popular imagination. There was soon a hit play based on Lieutenant Nunn's adventures, and when someone wrote a, a this time a fully fictionalized novelized version in 1650, it was believed to this day it's believed to be the first novel published in the Americas. Oh, the, the, there was no novel here published before this Lieutenant 1650 Nunn. fictionalization of Lieutenant Nunn. I mean, Don Quixote is only 1605, right. right? Same era. This is a very interesting time to be a Spaniard because, um, you know, you're you're 
it's the golden it's the golden age of your country's literature and theater and everything. And part of that's because of your your country's national prestige on the world stage. I mean, there's no bad time to be a Spaniard. Uh, I don't know. Franco era is not great. Oh yeah. Well, um, sure. I'm sure. Okay. The exception that proves the rule. Or is there another bad time to be a Spaniard? Well, uh, during the Napoleonic era, right? It's not the best time to be a Spaniard. But also, uh, if, if depending on whether or not you were a sailor during the Spanish Armada, that would have been a bad time. <laughs> Which <a> Spaniard? <laughs> this is only a hundred years after Columbus, so you know Spain is now uh, receiving the glories of New Spain, all their gold, and co- conquest, and pillage, pillage. And, yeah. and you know genocide, if sure. you if you want to call it what it is right. that's going on in the New World at the time, uh, and. Catalina de Arauso's memoirs certainly uh, overlap with all of that age of conquest and exploration, including kind of its barbaric and violent spirit. It's it's everywhere in her work. They schlep a printing press to the New World, presumably to make Bibles and uh, <laughs> and pamphlets, but then Lieutenant Nunn somehow makes it. Look, think who's over there. It's young Spanish soldiers. Oh, right. They don't want to read another chapbook of rules. There's it, there's Tawana Bibles, I'm so sure. Is it pretty sexy? Uh, it is extremely sexy, but in kind of unexpected, forward-thinking ways. Okay, well, let's hear. Um, Catalina de Arauso, again, born at the dawn of the 17th century in, as the net title of her memoirs reveal, San, Seb- San Sebastián, Spain, in Basque Country. Her dad is a military officer whom she admires, but there are obviously no military options for a young girl in northern Spain in 1600, and in fact, not a lot of options for promising girls anywhere. So she gets the the lot of many a bright girl at the time, which is to be shipped off to a Dominican convent, mm-hmm. uh, along with her three sisters. Her family sends off. Oh, gets rid of them all. Doesn't even try and marry them off. Well, there are reasons to do that back then. It's a real, you know, who has all the power in Spain in 1700? The Catholic Church. Sure. So you're showing a lot of uh, loyalty to the most powerful institution of the day um, by giving your promising youth. That's a, that's a favor that the local archbishop will remember. Yeah. Um, but it's also a real opportunity for them. Where else are you going to get kids educated yes where are you going to get young girls educated there's just not a lot of options right where are they going to learn you know in in a convent they're going to have to do you know needlepoint and cooking and all the kinds of uh, traditional girly education things but they're also going to learn to read and write in latin which was not going to happen anywhere else they're going to even learn kind of rudimentary natural science and natural history and astronomy and you know there's 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 a, a bit of liberal ed, broad liberal education going on in these uh, convents that girls are not getting on the outside in, in secular settings and they're basque so they would have been a persecuted minority in in uh philip's spain i guess i philip wonder uh, i mean their name is de arasa arasa which makes them sound like they are ethnically basque and not she's not just using basque in the sense of i'm a native of Basque country. Right. But her family does seem to be pretty prominent and successful if her dad is a military officer and, you know, and they're making, they're making deals with the local Catholic bigwigs to, uh, to educate the daughters. Um, but, you know, as we will see, Catalina de Arauso is a firecracker. Mm. She is a force of nature who cannot be contained. And that includes in the Dominican convent. At the age of 15, she steals... A A motorcycle. She steals a motorcycle and decides to take it all the way down South America. Mm -hmm. No, she steals thread and cloth and buttons and whatnot. Easier to steal than a motorcycle. It is, because it's small. You put it in a a pocket or some type of uh, leather uh, bag or jerkin. A tunic. Uh, you, you put you slip it into your jute underwear and you slip out of the convent in the dead of night. And so she runs away at the age of 15 or possibly 12 to 18, depending on which birthday is accurate. And she uses it, uh, you know, she uses it to make herself men's clothing. Uh Uh-huh. She turns her, her vestments into some trousers and a jacket. She does. And decides her name is now 
She renames herself Francisco de Loyola and uh, cuts her hair like a page boy and begins a new life as a disguised man. Uh, later, we'll actually hear that she's... Um, I don't think he ever, he or she ever, I don't think they ever bind their chest. Um, they're naturally fairly flat-chested. Um, but in the memoir mentions like herbal remedies that she's taking to that uh, seem to kind of have uh, a hormonal effect on her, on mm. her, um, mm. uh, you know, making Keep her, her look more manly. Mm-hmm. People describe a mustache on her later, a thin mustache on her later in life, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, happens to all of us, men or women. They, uh, she doesn't just run away to a forest outside San Sebastian, this being the pinnacle of New Spain. She can really run away someplace good. She runs away to the Caribbean. Wow, well done. To Panama and then Peru. She stows aboard. A, a she gets a job as a cabin boy now that she's got her fake short hair and fake trousers. Actually, probably real short hair and real trousers. It's true. Yeah. It's real short hair and real trousers. Right. It's a, it's a new it's, identity. It's a, it's a disguise. Yes. But it's not a wig. Clever disguise. You know, this was at a time when it was much easier because even in the Caribbean, even when it was 110 degrees, you still would have been expected to wear like a coat and shirt and vests and presumably helmet and gloves. Yeah. Nowadays, just try to, you know, be on the beach in... Yeah. How are you going to blend? In Cuba or Costa Rica and uh, and blend in as the opposite sex. Not easy, I'm guessing. But uh, she ends up stealing her... The, the captain is a family friend or something or an uncle who lets her on board as a favor. Oh, and knows it's her. Apparently. Uh, but she repays the favor by stealing all the money out of the cabin and hopping off when they get to Panama. Oh, come on. And having adventures. She does not seem to be a nice or admirable person in any way. I see. So I'm reluctant to hold her up as any kind of... Uh, Unruly teen. Yeah, or, or even as any kind of, um, uh, you know, trans hero for our age. Right. Um, well, but that's the thing about heroes, right? You can, like, trans culture also needs some some baddies. It's a crueler... Yeah, but, you know, we've been making... We've been making uh, different kinds of LGBT people the villains in our movies for years. You know, right, but this is one lesbians with ice picks. This is a this is a this is a cell phone. This is a, this is like a trans bat bat person. This is a real one. This is the the calls are coming from inside the house. I mean, and it is an era. Like I say, it's a more brutal time. You know, it's a time of right a time of conquest or whatever. It's, and people, it's not like she's the only conquistador doing mean stuff. Stealing from your your family friend has. I mean, that's got a long tradition in every culture. Oh, it gets worse. This begins, in her book, just two decades of mostly New World, um, kind of roving, picturesque uh, misadventures. Banditry and... Gambling, brawling, murder, a a ton of womanizing, which we'll get to. It starts very early. There's some kind of altercation with somebody at a theater. You know, another thing about this being New Spain is it's a dueling culture. And so a recurring theme in the book is just her getting into all kinds of armed, uh, armed uh, combat with somebody who. But it's duels with cutlasses, not pistols, right? Well, in this case, she takes a whetstone. The duel does not come first. Somebody insults her at a theater. She goes and takes a whetstone and uses it to make saw teeth in a dagger. So she is now, um, what, modding her own weaponry. And then comes back and just gashes the guy and gives him like 10 stitches to the face and neck with her her little homemade, uh, home-modded dagger. Right. At that point, he uh, comes after her with some friends and she kills them all. Well. And then she does her killer move. And this happens multiple times in the book and it always works, is she leverages the Catholic Church. Having grown up in a Dominican convent... She knows all the rules and all the loopholes, and she throws herself on the mercy of the church and claims sanctuary, and this happens over and over in the book. She'll get up to, you know, it's, it, it, at some point you realize, even in a tough world, if this happens to you over and over, you're the asshole. Yeah, right. And if, if you look around and can't find the murderer with the serrated knife in the room. You can't find the evil mercenary in the room. You. It might be you. So now this throwing oneself upon the mercy of the church uh, like uh, masked gender, notwithstanding, 
Uh, can you just go kill people and then go throw yourself on the mercy of the church and be absolved of the of the civil crime? It appears yes. I and mean, at this point, there is some tension between the power of the church and the power of the state. But she very cleverly cleverly leverages that at many points in the book, so that you know if civil authorities are after her, she finds out who the the religious bigwig in town is and says, you know, Senor, you have to help me. Uh, this is unjust, and. You know, find some say the right Catholic thing. Find and, some gullible priest, and it's a get out of jail free card basically every single time. Wow! And I don't think she ever uses her birth assigned gender. You know, no. she, she never she does not uh, throw herself. You know, instantly become a damsel in distress and then throw herself at the priest's feet because they'd probably burn her at the stake. That would be the worst crime of all. Well, as we'll see. She later gets an odd amount of indulgence for her uh, cross-dressing. Interesting. But that doesn't happen at first. And I think you're right in general. Yeah, th- this is something she really has to be deep undercover about. Um, fleeing uh, one of these many civil altercations, which has ended with a bunch of dead Spaniards face down in a dark alley in Peru, um, she decides to join the an army which is being gathered up to head down to Chile and popular uh, pastime of the era, murder a bunch of Indians. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. a lot of uh, insurrections going on with the indigenous people. And so there's always three squares uh, squares a day to be had and good money found fighting Indians. Mm -hmm. So under a new uh, male alias, this time Alonso Diaz Ramirez de Guzman, she joins this Chilean army and heads out into the woods and finds, in fact, that the uh, officer who commissions her has a very familiar voice and is surprised to find it's her own brother, Miguel, from back home, who does not recognize her. Wow. So this is the kind of thing where you're like, this actually cannot have happened. Yeah. And yet, the way the story is told and the way the facts check out, maybe it's embellished, but a lot of this stuff seems to have happened. And so without recognizing her, Miguel dispatches her to fight the Indians, where she becomes a hero. Wow, she she excels at this pursuit, at she, this distinctively Spanish pursuit. Yes, she becomes uh, a war hero. And uh, at this point, um, she gets involved in another debauched gambling, probably cheating at cards phase, which ends with a fight, which ends with her fighting a man in a brawl, which again, all the, these she never loses a fight in this book. Uh-huh. Ends with her almost killing another guy in a brawl again, ends up in a, a Franciscan monastery. Because she can, if she's passing as male, she can... Oh, go to a monastery. Pre- pretend to be a, a monk in training. Yeah. And stays there for six months. At this point, another officer asks her to serve as a second in a duel, which is taking place in a dark alleys in some Spanish settlement in Peru. Uh, she gets there to serve a second, and, you know, anytime Catalina's on the scene... The fight's going to get bigger, not smaller. Uh She ends up uh, fighting a group of men in the alley when the duel goes wrong, even though she was just supposed to be a second, and ends up killing a man who turns out to be her brother, Miguel. Oh, no. The same officer who did not recognize her when he sent her to fight Indians in Chile. And, you know, she heads back to the monastery, which is where they bring the body, and she has to watch her brother laid out. Did she know it was him when when the, the fight ensued? Only, I think only after, in her telling of it, only after the fact. Oh, no. So again, the kind of thing you would never believe. Not only is this brother turn up on a different continent sending her into the army, but he turns out to be the mystery man who she's fighting in a dark alley. Oh, no. So, I don't know. Is this stuff embellished? Maybe. I don't know. Is that what, but do, the, does the record show that that's in fact where he died and how? I think, I think this is accurate. Oh. That, uh. That Miguel does did turn up in Peru later and died in a skirmish. Because you know the Flashman books uh, situate a fictional uh, Lieutenant Flashman in all these historical episodes where he plays a pivotal role. But it's always very yeah, careful. This is like a British. What is this early twentieth century British kind of boys' adventure? Yeah, it's like he's like a, a Zelig or, or Forrest Gump character. Who's, yeah, although not a boys' adventure because they're they're fairly ribald. Oh, is that true? It's more pulpy. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, adult uh, stuff. Yeah, what, what we would call kissing um, in it. Kids don't want to read about that. No, you definitely don't want to read about kissing if you are. What's the name uh, of the author? Is it George McDonald? Uh, yeah, Fla- uh, Frazier. Frazier, yes. 
Um, and so, so, uh, but Flashman, you know, Frazier is, is careful not to have Flashman. Um, he sort of, Flashman single-handedly survives a lot of escapades, but you know, it, you're not, uh, you're not put in the position of needing to go to the, to the record to see if he actually was standing next to, um, you know, McClellan or whatever at the end of the war. So, but this, this seems there's no point at which trying to fast, uh, trying to fact check this story that you come up with um, ways that it doesn't work. Right. And obviously, you know, the records of New Spain in the early 1600s are so fragmentary. Yeah. That it would be, you know, it could be pretty embellished and it would be possible to tell. But just kind of the odd, flat, confessional way it's told, hmm. it just does make it seem like, hey, hmm. I, uh, my name is Lieutenant Nunn, and I've seen some shit. Right. Um, at this point, but this does rattle her, realizing that she's killed her brother. So she deserts from the army, and with a couple of other deserters, kind of heads up north into the Andean highlands, where they promptly get lost. The two men starve to death, and uh, Catalina would as well, except that she's found by a ranch hand and uh, brought down to a settlement and nursed back to health by um, by a an indigenous uh, widow who owns this plot. And the widow wants Catalina to marry her daughter. Now Catalina is... So in nursing Catalina back to health, the widow never... Never actually uh, discovers her. Apparently, yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess she's got to be good at deflecting at this point. Right. Now she's had... Uh, the rec- Her own memoirs are full of confessions that really make it clear that... Um, she likes women a mm-hmm. lot. Um, she's always causing little intrigues. At the age of 18, she's romancing her boss's mistress and causing a duel there. There's some point in Lima where she uh, she appears to be very attracted to her boss's sister-in-law. She's always combing her hair and running her hands up and down her legs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which gets her, you know, the kind of thing you don't want to do to your boss's sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets her fired. Um, later in the book, at one point, she's engaged to two women at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this point, she, but at this point, she is not attracted to the daughter, but thinks, um, this is, I got to lay low for a while. So she agrees to the marriage. Um, this is the second, by the way, this is the second simultaneous engagement because while engaged to the widow's daughter, she's also romancing the daughter of a local Spanish official. Um, so she's got two fiancés. Before either marriage can take place, she manages to steal both dowries and leave town. Yeah. That's how to do it. That is how to do it. It's take, I'm, I'm, I'm going to start writing some of this stuff down. At this point, she pretty much becomes a full-time con man and brigand on the run from the law, of, you know, fighting a series of glamorous sword fights at, mm-hmm. on every few pages. This is the bulk of the autobiography and is, is really the hardest part to pin down. You know, this is the part where there could be a lot more embellishment the sword fight portion yeah but it's also repetitive you know it's, it, there's there's not a whole lot of plot turns it's really a lot of and then i got to this city and then i soon got into a fight and then i was had to was almost a, on the point of being arrested and had to run to the cathedral and you know it just this just happens time and time again it happens in la paz where she's arrested and has to use the church again she's she would have been they want to hang her yeah. And she has to, again, play the local uh, law enforcement against the local monastery. Was Catalina a drinker? Must have been. Must have been. Although I don't, it doesn't appear in the work, but I assume that's just because you would not have to mention it in the early right. 1600s that you were drinking heavily in the Spanish army because everyone was. I, I don't know. Am I right? Yeah. 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 Am I right? She winds up in <laughs> 17th century Spaniards. Am I right? Glug, glug, glug. She winds up in Cusco where she becomes, she finds a rival uh, gang leader, kind of another brigand called El Cid, like the new Cid, not the, not the more fighting Spanish hero, but named in honor of, I guess in the same way that a French gangster might be called Little Napoleon or whatever. This guy is the new Cid who tries to take some of her winning. He tries to, um, what do do you call it? Rake off some of her winnings every time she uh, hits it big at cards, which keeps happening. She never says she's cheating in the memoir, but you kind of have to assume. Uh-huh. Um, and he keeps doing it. And finally, the third time he reaches for a stack, she just puts a dagger through his hand. Yep. 
on the table. Yep. Um, as you can imagine, the gambling den does not take too quietly to this. She's uh, too kindly to this. She's kicked out. The gang follows. Um, even though El Cid is armored and Catalina is not, she uh, takes him down and kills this infamous local uh, rogue. But she is also mortally wounded. Oh, boy. And in fact, last rites are even said over her. She confesses to a local priest. And this time she tells the whole story, including um, the convent, all her crimes. Um, the priest is shocked, but can't say anything because these are last rites. But of course she survives. Um, and now she's confessed her whole story to a priest and, you know, and, and killed a pretty big name in the local underworld. Um, it's getting harder and harder to stay under the radar. Uh, posses are being organized. Um, she keeps everywhere she goes, she'll get recognized because there are now posters up. Yeah. Have you seen this man? Um, and finally, in the city of uh, Guamanga, she is uh, she she's uh, escapes arrest in Ayacucho, finds sanctuary with the bishop, and then confesses to the bishop the whole story. Um, you know, I'm a woman. I'm a daughter of such and such a man, a woman. I was grown up here. I, instead of taking my vows at the convent, I ran off. Blah blah blah. I have roamed, hustled, corrupted, maimed, and murdered until I have come to end up here at his lordship's feet. Hmm. Now, the bishop is shocked. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he's seen a lot of uh, bad behavior sure. in this frontier town. Right, goes with the territory. I, but always, I always say frontier in Spanish. Frontier. It's only a frontier in frontera. America. It's the frontera yeah. here, in, uh, here in Ayacucho or Guamanga or wherever we are. And he doesn't believe the story. So he has some midwives examine her. And they confess that, yes, she is anatomically a woman. And more to the point, and this seems to be what impresses the priest, her virginity is intact. Huh. Now, this is a big deal back then. Because, really, how bad could she be? If she's still a virgin. You know, the conception back then of a, of a sinful woman would be sexual debauchery. You know, right. that's what obsesses all these creepy guys, right? Sure. You can murder 50 people, but if you're a virgin, you're still pure. How bad can she be? If you had if you had kissed a couple of soldiers, you'd be consigned to eternity in hell. You're right. There does seem to be some, something about the fact that back then, women's sins would be lust. These are the kind of sins that women feel and guide men into. Right. Surely a man who's who's been uh, having an affair has been has been seduced into it by this lustful woman. Only men have these sins of violence. So the fact that she, A, turns out to be a woman, that would confine her sins to the traditional women's ones, and her physical intactness means that she's not succumbed to any of them. Because back then, no, it wouldn't have occurred to the priest, oh no, she's just like super-duper lesbian. Right. Or, you know, today... Lesbian to, warrior. Or today we would say, we would admit the possibility she's not a lesbian, she's a trans man. Um, but the priest is very impressed that she's managed to keep her uh -huh. virtue intact. Uh -huh. uh, and the fact that she's been sawing through people's necks with, um, with home-modified daggers doesn't seem to bother him. So he uh, decides to, you know, she's, well, you, uh, Catalina, you've run away from the convent. We can fix this. Um, let's put you in a nun's habit. And he sends her off to the convent. And word from Sp Spain is... Uh, consulted as to whether or not she's actually taken vows. Uh-huh. And when she has not, she's essentially imprisoned in the convent. Like, this was part of part of her conditions of her parole, essentially, is that she has to be a nun. But when word comes back that she's not a nun, that she was just a young teen in a convent, a, what do you call it? A right. Postulant or a novice or whatever. Um, she's allowed to go. And at this point, she makes her way back to Spain and I guess word of her unlikely gender-bending adventures have reached Spain ahead of her, have preceded her. And so there's a, she's a real novelty. You know, she's greeted like a hero when she gets to Cadiz. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where the most interesting part of the story happens, because she requests an audience with King Philip to say, hey, I served in your army fighting the whatever Mapuche Indians or whatever, and I don't have a pension. And she manages to talk the king into granting her 800 escudos a year. Wow. Um, even, well though she, even though she seems to be not just what would be regarded as a deviant at the time, but really one of the worst cutthroats of the age. Yeah. 
by her own confession. So, but that, but her book has not been published at this point. Her story is not has not been told uh, in Catalina's own words. She appears to dictate it around this time. It, it's probably during her vision uh, visit to Europe where her story starts capturing people's imaginations that she sits down a scribe and unless the whole book is a later uh, um, fabrication, right? Which doesn't seem impossible. Um, it would have been during this European trip where she dictates it. And, you know, the fact that she's able to wheedle this out of the king, despite all she's done, I mean, it, for one thing, it just reveals kind of what a cruel and brutal age this is. But also, it just shows whatever her other attributes, you know, there's a reason why she keeps getting out of trouble. You know, she's a, she's a survivor. She's a smooth operator. Yeah, she knows what to say and who to say it to and how to butter them up. And I guess, you know, if maybe a modern diagnosis would say she's borderline or sociopathic or whatever, but I mean, that kind of ability to operate sometimes comes with that kind of personality just oh, yeah. because it's a survival mechanism. All great progress is made by sociopaths. I mean, the rest of us are just trailing along. You've worked in rock music. Oh. You've, you've seen some of these smooth characters. Oh, boy. In boy. fact, there's a, there's a surviving picture of her, and I don't know how accurate this oil painting is, but she really does look like a British invasion musician. She's kind of got the... <laughs> who does she look like? Ronnie Wood, maybe? Yeah, she does. She she's looks like one of the small faces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because she's got a, a big face. Yeah. The, the small faces of the ironically named British Invasion Band. She actually kind of has a Rod Stewart look. It's like all the small faces together. Right? Yeah. In a, I mean... I, in in I, one big, big, small face. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She could start a group called The One Faces. She's got the she's got the haircut that they wish they had. <laughs> yeah, she's in the in painting. She does kind of have the Prince Valiant page boy that, but kind of the home the home cut COVID version of the page boy. Yeah, that, right. That you could you could imagine seeing on one of these musicians. Mm-hmm. Anyway, her even more impressive feat from her European trip is a trip to Rome, where she requests an audience from Urban the Eighth, the Pope. Is she well enough known that this trip to Rome is a um, is like an all expenses paid junket, or is she is she hopping freights to Rome? Oh, that's a good question. Um, well, she's got her eight hundred scudo a year pension. She's got a. I mean, in order to request an audience, you have to. I don't think this is like Elizabeth the first wanting to meet Pocahontas. I don't think Urban the Eighth was like, mm, bring me this odd, sexually ambiguous young person. Right. Um, I think it's more like. She headed to Rome and asked for an audience. And her request, according to her autobiography, and this there's no Vatican record of, but her autobiography suggests that she sought from him a special dispensation to keep dressing like a man, which would have been a religious prohibition at the time, right? On the basis of right. scriptural interpretation about what men and women should wear and do with their hair. Right. You know, they would have had predictably Inquisition era views about. Social mores. Right. They're not an open-minded people. The, no, they, not at they, the time. The Spanish Catholics of the era. But this, but she's going to the Italian Catholics. So, oh, uh, that's right. You know, and as we know from other omnibi, you know, there's a lot more free thinking going on uh-huh. in the, whatever, the, what's the name of the Pope's summer palace? There's hanky-panky going on. And according to her memoir, he agrees that, you know, she's been such a staunch defender of the faith because, you know, she plays herself up as a military hero in the new world, oh, right. protecting the church and the crown against all these uh, forces of heathen barbarism, including her brother, the, the, the assistant governor. I think she leaves that out. Yeah, it's it's so. more like these Indians were desecrating a Bible, right, uh, right. Your, your holiness. And, and luckily, I had to take on these, the, the clothes of a man. Luckily I was there. And uh, in her memoir, the Pope agrees that she will be no. able to continue her life dressing as uh, Francisco or Alonzo or whatever her current, um, uh, you know, nom de conquistador is. No, I did not see that coming, I have to say. Generally, Popes, in my experience, tend to be not really, you know, like malleable on questions of, of this kind of thing. Right, they they they're not like you know what you make a good point. Like popes don't typically say things like that. They kind of it's a it's an it's a hierarchical society. This must be a sign of her. Again, another sign of her. Mm-hmm. Just uh, 
She's good at uh, fast talker. Yep. Uh, stubborn about what she wants and uh, convincing. A convincing diplomat and a shrewd negotiator. It's possible that there might have been a serrated knife involved in the negotiations. Right. She doesn't confess to any kind of... I, Say in, hello to my little friend. In her version, Urban is just fascinated with her. Right. You know, because she's such a novelty. At this point, and you know, this is when the portrait gets painted and she looks a little bit like Rod Stewart and Ronnie Wood had a kid. And she heads back to the New World, this time winding up in Mexico. Oh, back to the New World again. Mm-hmm. And We're, this is where she spends the last 20... And her, her at this point, her memoir has been dictated and her... Uh, Portrait's been painted, and she's met all her famous people. And so this is where kind of the her public mythologizing of herself ends. And in, you know, in the historical accounts, she appears to have lived a pretty quiet life after this. Huh. And maybe that's just because she's no longer around to make her own story sound more dashing and uh, full of daring do mm-hmm. and uh, an edgy Tarantino-esque violence. Uh-huh. But um, in the historical record, she's back in Mexico. She runs a mule train between Mexico City and Veracruz and spends the last uh, 20 years of her life pretty quietly. There's one more uh, kind of womanizing intrigue um, on her way back uh, because she'd been hired to be the bodyguard of a girl who was being sent back to Mexico to be married. Catalina falls in love with this girl who is already engaged to like a to an Hidalgo to a to a Mexican bigwig. If you're picking a bodyguard for your for your you know vulnerable new bride, maybe not the womanizingest um, lesbian in the in the era. Do you think there's just no? Do you think it's just utter naivete that that's even an option? Because you know, even today, reading her book, she never says, "Oh, and I was a huge lesbian." You know, you're just kind of reading between the lines about all these intrigues that arise in connection with all these uh, women. Yeah, you could fiancés see, and in laws. You could see the people of the time, the 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 men of the time, making the category error of thinking, "Oh, my young bride will be safe uh, with uh, Catalina because." I mean, she's a woman. So yeah. how can of all the tough of all the tough people I could put her with? Yeah, I'll just put her with a fellow woman because then what could happen? What could happen? What could possibly happen? Just this, you know. I'll just put her with this big butchy woman with a, uh, you know, a forceful personality and a little mustache. Uh-huh. Um, and so predictably, this winds up in another one of Catalina's many duels over uh, over a woman. There's a fight. Yes, but that's kind of the end of her. The rest of her life is a, she's a dull muleteer, living quietly, you know, dressed as a man, which is a novelty. So you know, so she appears, she continues to appear in the in the Mexican record. As, she's dressed as a man, but everybody knows the the truth. Yeah, and that's just she's a, a local, maybe not a local celebrity, but like a you know a novelty, a character. Sure, I see. Part of the weird cultural fabric of of this part of new Spain. And, uh, she dies at 1650 at the age of, mm, depending on which account you believe she's either 65 or 58, a long life for back then. Not so bad, uh, especially considering, you know, per number of duels fought, it might be the, lo- <laughs> the longest life of anyone at the time. And that's really how you should do it. Right. Right. You just divide your lifespan by number of duels fought and who she might have the highest ratio of anybody, man or woman in, uh, in new Spain. And that concludes Lieutenant Nunn, entry 718.2C1102, certificate number 11658 in the omnibus. Futurelings in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at Omnibus Project. You can find Ken Jennings on the internet at Ken Jennings. And you can search for me on the internet. And good luck to you, my friends. Will you be under a series John of... John Roderick. Under a series of uh, pseudonyms? Francisco uh, de Loyola? Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. That's, that's actually a good Jesuit pseudonym for that you. That would be a pretty good pseudonym. You can find me at patreon.com slash John Roderick. But that's the only place. 
Um, also, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Ken or Ken's wife, Mindy, will read the email. And if you mention me specifically by name, there is a 20% chance that, uh, that Ken or Mindy will forward the email. I feel email like Mindy doesn't read the email unless it's like... Uh, on a bookkeeping complaint type Patreon. So stuff. it's you. It's you that decides whether or not I'm going to read the emails. Oh, uh, I guess it's me that decides by not reading them, but it's you that decides the ones that you want to earmark. Yeah, but I feel like Flag. I'm a, I'm 100% effective at people being like, hey, John, uh, well, I mean, if, if they're just like, love the show, I'm not going to be like, well, John does the show. I should send this to him. Hmm. But when people have a question, hmm. All right. I send it to you. Um, you can support our program at patreon.com slash omnibus project. We are a listener supported show and we appreciate your, um, your financial support. We also, also your moral support and your, your spiritual support. You can mail us actual physical items at PO box five, five, seven, four, four shoreline, Washington, nine, eight, one, five, five. Ken, it looks like you've got a mailbag open over there. Yeah. E Jordan of Seattle has sent us, um, some ephemera, just random old timey stuff. People just send us garbage. Now. I, I love it. And I it's fantastic. It. Cause this is actually really good stuff. One is from the, uh, office of civil defense of the state of California in 1950 from, I... from no less than governor Earl Warner, not Earl Warren, not yet. Chief justice, Chief Warren. justice Warren. I believe I have that pamphlet already. Survival under atomic attack. Mm-hmm. Where is the best place to go? How many layers of tinfoil should I put under my baseball hat to protect me from gamma rays? There is little you can do to protect your house from blast. Oh, man. I thought... You I can thought build if, a bomb shelter like the one we're in. I thought if I had, like, um, double-pane windows or whatever, I could stand up to an atomic explosion. Mm-hmm. It is best to figure on collapse of the upper floors and to take com- cover in the cellar. Yes. Figure on it. Kill the myths. Atomic weapons will not destroy the Earth. Well... Thanks, Governor Warren. Atomic bombs hold more death and destruction than man ever before is wrapped up in a single passage, but their overall power still has very definite limits. Oh, thanks. I feel well, better. Yeah, that's pretty good. Radioactivity is not the bomb's greatest threat. Really? Really? What is know. the bomb's greatest threat? Um, Her feelings? <laughs> use the telephone only for true emergencies. That's what I always do in a nuclear war. That's my general policy with telephones. Only true emergencies. Don't call me trying to schedule something. Water in your pipes of your house at the time of explosion will not be radioactive. All right. I don't know if I believe any of this, honestly. Well, oh. it's protected by lead because all the pipes would have been lead then. <laughs> That's true. You'll get a different kind of poisoning. Uh, here's the Leslie method of our movement writing, which is a cursive writing. Uh, well, that's a nice little guide. book. I like the, it's, the typeface. It's full of a few dozen, exer- oh, a hundred exercises to master the Leslie style of writing. You should check this stuff out. Thank you. What else do we have? Uh, it looks like a mini comic called Moose Number Nine with some super R-crumb-influenced, uh, big-bottomed, uh, borderline racially offensive ladies. Moose Number Nine. Let me see. Maybe I'll recognize the... Uh, I don't know if it's a local... ripoff press artist... Oh, it's like a little zine. Yeah, here's another mini comic scene. This one's quite comely. The Sacrifice. Bomb time for Bonzo number one. Three different artists are publishing in this one. Oh, this is super duper zine but this isn't from the 60s. This no. is. But, but you can see that in the on the first leaf, you can see the Arkham influenced. Yeah, I do. Well, this is, this is a recent. Here are two postcards so old that postcard is two words. Would you like a postcard? One is the battleship Alabama. One is the cruiser Tennessee. It's from Britain and Ray, lithographers, San Francisco. These are early 20th century. That's very cool. Here's a little sign language alphabet to carry with you at all times so you can finger spell. Uh-huh. That's helpful. Oh, that's very helpful. Here's a, a, a guide to the birth and growth of the Inland Boatman's Union of the Pacific. I mean, all of this taken together is uh, is yeah, I'm like learn- I'm learning a lot about E. Jordan. Yeah, E. Jordan uh, really has a sense of what what omnibus is. I love the apostrophe. It's birth and growth. See, some things predate the internet. And finally, uh, a Mars attacks card. Not one of the old ones. This appears for, to be from the era of the uh, of the Tim Burton movie. But it's got. Wally Wood art. 
This is not Wally Wood on the front. This looks like Keith Giffen on the front. The back is a Wally Wood sketch. Thank you so much, E. Jordan. Thanks, E. If you go to the Patreon, you can see... Um, Donors, supporters can see images of all this stuff if you're curious. I love that inland boatman is one word on this pamphlet. Yeah, postcard two words in the olden days, but inland boatman. Inland boatman's union. I don't I don't think I would ever it's be like part of any term. organization that would have a 13-letter job in the title or me as a member. Did you just know that it had 13 letters uh, by some kind of strange mind? Yeah, I can, Training? I'm, I'm pretty. I'm pretty good at that. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Wow. In this case, you can just do inland and boatman. Yeah, but I wouldn't instantly know the number of letters in either of those words. I can just by inland. Just, I can okay. do up to eight just right. looking at a word. Boatman. After nine, ten, eleven, it gets a little. It, I guess it's a skill that it never occurred to me to try and practice. It's a kind of synesthesia where the word just seems different to me. Like a six-letter word just seems incredibly different. But it's probably just from a lifetime of being a dork and doing like crosswords. Interesting. You just looked at Inland Boatman and were and just your first thought was 13 letters. It comes up on Jeopardy a lot. It'll the category will be 13 letter words. And you don't want to have to sit there counting on your fingers. Because you'll look like a dumb Kevin on TV. One more way in which Ken Jennings' mind defies convention. I feel like if I'd lived in the 17th century, I could have just wrecked a swath of, uh, of violence and uh, plunder across South America with talents like that. Hmm. But different time. Time is a flat circle. Listeners from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. If everything goes wrong soon, just remember, drink all the water in the pipes. It's fine. Right. The gamma rays can't get in there. And in fact, we hope and pray that the catastrophe will never come. But if the worst comes soon, head to your cellar. This recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.